Love is in the air on a special Valentine's Day episode of The Underdogs. We check in on MLB offseason moves we love. And then our old flame, Ryan McGee, checks in with an intimate look at the Daytona 500. The cry goes up both far and near for Underdog. Underdog. Countdown going on right now. Morrow up to Schultz. Five seconds left in the game. You believe in miracles? Yes! George, the dream is alive. Underdog. And I guess there's only one thing left to do. Win the whole fucking thing. It's the Underdogs back with you for another week. I'm your host, Jordan Brenner. Joined as always by my co-host and friend dressed as Cupid, wearing a red blazer, Peter Keating. Peter, why? Jordan, it's Valentine's Day and we're feeling the love. This show is all about things we love, moves that we love, a guest we love. So I'm feeling the love. Happy Valentine's Day to you and yours, Jordan. Well, thank you. It's really touching to hear that. Um, I am getting over the broken heart of football season being over. Um, you know, quite a Super Bowl, quite a lot to discuss there, but we're moving on. We're moving on. Okay. Baseball season is around the corner. Spring training is getting going. We're going to get into our favorite underdog moves of the offseason a little bit later. But first, the Daytona 500 is coming up. Neither Peter nor I is what we would call an, an expert in motorsports, but thankfully we have a friend who is our former colleague at ESPN. He's still there. We're long gone. You know him. You love him. Ryan McGee, welcome to the program. We are so honored to have you with us. Star of stage and screen. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it, it's it, good to see y'all's faces. Yeah. I mean, after years of uh, uh, particularly with Jordan uh, bugging each other about stories we're working on and whatever else. And and that it's just, it's good to see faces and hear voices and and talking about racing, y'all, y'all know I me. Mean, back in the day, man, that was uh, that was my job. I knew that there was a big race coming when all of a sudden I had a lot of uh, a lot of uh, New York area codes calling the phone <laughs> with uh, with questions about uh, what does a yellow flag mean. I'm like, all right, it must be it must be time for Daytona. <laughs> I will say, back in our ESPN the magazine days, well, I don't first of all, I don't think I've seen Ryan since we were both in Charlotte to do an ESPNU uh, college basketball preview wow. episode from the wow. magazine, but but. It was truly a pleasure back when I was an editor to actually get to work with Ryan on a piece. Usually it was more, I think we probably collaborated more in college football than, than motorsports. JB had uh, motorsports locked down, but it was Ryan is a, is a, a, a true pleasure to work with if you're editing and he's writing. And I can't say that for everyone. So I appreciate that. I appreciate, that. I appreciate you saying that because I'm on. So thank you, <laughs> but no, but it's, but it's good to see you guys. You know, it's funny because uh, I talk about the magazine every day. I was at a speaking engagement. Uh, just last night and a, a touchdown club. And I, and whenever I talk about the magazine, what a guy said to me last night, he goes, it's like, you're talking about college. I go, it was, I said, it was like, it was like going to, you know, journalism, Harvard and, uh, and my, and the friendships that you make in the, in the freshman dorm are the ones that stick with you for the rest of your life. Even when you don't for sure. uh, get to see everyone all the time. So that's why, uh, that's why I was so excited when you guys reached out this week. Well, that's well, the first Ryan, time Ryan, anyone's Ryan, been excited when we've right. Ryan has cracked. <laughs> Ryan has cracked the code. We're attempting a long distance, long term reunion. That's how that's how this show works. And but uh, but you're actually the first person to be happy about it. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. So let's get into some racing. All right. Daytona 500. Peter, you've been talking about how it is the most random of races, right? Which is perfect. Well, for yeah, Ryan. I I, I want to try a story out on you and see how you think the story has changed. Okay. So forever. Um, the Daytona 500 was this really fast, 
course, right? So much so that about 30 years ago, a couple of horrible accidents happened. Could have been a lot worse than they were, but it accelerated this um, this idea that they needed to slow top speeds down, right? And so it became one of only two courses with restrictor plates for another very long time, right? And that caused cars to bunch up and caused a lot of chaos. The one piece of analytics that I've ever done that was halfway serious on motorsports was I worked with this professor who looked at the correlation between the guys who led laps and the guys who won races. And he found that until the 475th lap, there was no correlation. That through 95% of the race, whoever was winning did not predict who was going to win. That's how ran. And so we did one piece called, this is the most random sporting event in America. And the chaos was fun, right? But then five years ago, the restrictor plates came off, right? And what, I'm, what I think I'm most interested in hearing your opinion about is like, how has that changed or maybe not changed so much the Daytona 500 from the kind of the beautiful chaos that used to reign there? Well, and you're exactly right. Um, everything that you just said. And, and But what it comes to is is the reason the restrictor plate were put on the engines, and this was in the late 80s. Bobby Allison almost died uh, at Talladega. And it was just you know horrible accident after horrible accident. You know, Richard Petty had a, a similar crash at Daytona. And they're traveling 230 miles per hour you know, down the back stretch, which is too fast. I mean, you know, it, it, in an Indy car, you go that fast and you have a giant wing that keeps you glued to the ground. Uh, in, a, in a stock car, you know, it, it, that thing turns just a few degrees one direction or another, it becomes a wing, an airplane wing. And so they had to slow the cars down and the restrictor plate is pretty simple. I mean, you just set it on top of, you screwed it on the top of a carburetor and it literally just created smaller holes and choke the amount of air that could get into the engine. Well, if you choke air to the engine, you know, you choke horsepower. Well, carburetors went away, finally. Carburetors left our cars on the streets decades ago. They finally left NASCAR just a few years ago. And so now there's no restrictor plate, but there is still restriction put on those engines, um, you know, through the fuel injectors. And so the engines are still choked, but they're still restricted. So we still have those big packs of aerodynamic cars uh, you know, the drafting, you know, I, everybody just go rent days of thunder. The best explanation I can give you for drafting is, is what, uh, Cole trickle does on the Cole Kimmins thighs with sweet and low packages. It, it, people make fun of it. It's still the best explanation, but they do travel in packs. And what's wild. And I wrote this last year when Ricky Stenhouse jr. Won the race and it went into overtime, uh, because they, they don't want to end the race, you know, under caution anymore. So, so they'll give you two or three, you know, uh, you know, green flag checker, two lap shootouts to the end. And what happens now is, and, and it happened last year, and I wrote this in my post-race column that night, this is just the way it is now, which is everyone races really hard, and there's guys who lead early, and there's guys who lead in the middle. And with about 10 laps to go, we've been racing for two and a half hours, and then the last 10 laps plus five or six laps takes an hour and a half because of every single crash. And so that's just how it is now. And, and it's why Dale Earnhardt struggled so long to win the Daytona 500. But you go look at his stats. He led every year. He led the most laps in a lot of the races that he lost. Last year, Kyle Busch, who's the new Dale Earnhardt when it comes to career futility trying to win the Daytona 500, Kyle's a Hall of Famer by any measure. He's getting toward the end of his career. He's been trying at Daytona for a couple of decades. He was leading the race last year on lap 200, but unfortunately – it was under caution and it went into overtime and he ended up in the crash like everyone else. And Ricky Stenhouse Jr. won. So yeah, it's, it's beautiful chaos, but, but the, the standard operating procedure now is 
it's pretty good racing for two and a half hours. And then it's a lot of crashing for the next hour. And that's only a handful of laps. And we're probably going to get a winner. Um, you look at the winners over the last few years and this Ricky Stenhouse Jr. And, you know, it's it, it's guys I like. It's Michael McDowell, but it's guys who don't win very often or, or haven't won in a long time. And, you know, that's it's what Daytona does. Sorry, McGee. Uh, yeah. Well, well our, our audience likes to put a couple bucks down on various sporting events. So I've been looking at the odds here. You know, Denny Hamlin plus 900 is the favorite to be the winner. Kyle Busch plus 1,100. You got a couple guys at plus 1,200, a couple guys at plus 1,400. Give me one pick you like from the top of the pack and one on we are the underdogs podcast, one considerable underdog who you might be willing to throw a couple bucks on. Well, I think Kyle Bush, um, he's kind of the next guy, right? You know, it, what, what's amazing is that we talk a lot about when Dale Earnhardt finally won the Daytona 598 after 20 years of trying. Uh, it took Daryl Waltrip 17 years. I mean, it took a lot of race car drivers a lot of years to do it, Buddy Baker. But then you get to the point where it's guys who've never won a race. Tony Stewart never won the Daytona 500. Rusty Wallace never won the Daytona 500. I mean, you know, Jeff Gordon's winning multiple races and Jimmy Johnson's winning multiple races. And then you got a Kyle Busch, who, again, by any measure is a first ballot Hall of Famer, but hasn't won the race. Martin Trex Jr. is a former champion, has not won this race. But I, I look at Kyle Busch because it just feels like he's due. And it feels like, you know, it's the last thing left for him to do in his career to cement himself as an all-time great. And even Denny Hamlin, who's won this race three times, uh, you know, he has a, a great podcast he does, and he was asked on the podcast, who's going to win the Daytona 500? And he said, well, I'm not going to say me because I think it's me. He said, but I keep thinking about Kyle Busch. So I think that's the name you're going to hear the most, and I think that's rightfully so. And so among the favorites, uh, he's the guy I'm looking at. But then you, the last I saw, Bubba Wallace was like a 20-to-1. Uh, Bubba could have won this race a couple of times already uh, in, in a, still a pretty young career. But, I mean, last year's winner, Ricky Stenhouse Jr., is way down the board. But Jimmy Johnson, mm. multiple-time winner mm. of this race, um, just went into the NASCAR Hall of Fame a, a couple of weeks ago. I was at the induction ceremony. But Jimmy now co-owns Richard Petty's race team and is going to run nine races this year. Yeah, it's hard for He's, me to see Jimmy Johnson sitting out there and in a Toyota. He, first time in his life, he will not have driven uh, a Chevrolet. It's going to be weird, but it, you know, it, experience matters. And he's so seven thousand. That's a, yeah, and, and, that's because, a good because shot, the team yeah. is terrible. But Jimmy Johnson is not terrible, and so so I'm 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 really curious to watch him. And and I bet you, I guarantee you, what he's going to do is he will spend most of the race. To Peter's point, he'll spend most of the race back in the back because he's going to sit back there and he's going to wait for what we call the big one. And now we have three or four big ones and he's going to wait for those to hopefully sort themselves out. And then I would not be surprised if uh, the man can smell money and I wouldn't be surprised if with five laps to go, you know, all of a sudden uh, Jimmy Johnson's Toyota, which is super weird to say is uh, somewhere near the front. So, so there are strategies or ways for guys to kind of just survive that first two and a half hours and not really even try to compete to get the lead and make it through crashes. That's that's, that's this is actually there. There are drivers who are better at that than others. Right. Because yeah. a lot of this just sounds random, but it's not all random. right? No. And, and it's and, and it sounds random, but it's not. I mean, if you really what what becomes random is the big crash. You know, you, you can't, you can't affect what's going to happen, but if you look at who is where 
with eight laps to go when the big crash happens, who's going to be there? It's going to be Kyle Busch, and it's going to be Brad Keselowski, and it's going to be Denny Hamlin, and it's going to be these veteran drivers. So, so it all matters up until that point. But then once the chaos starts, you have no control over what's going to happen after that. But but there's skill involved. You have the you know uh, experience matters, and you'll see that when you look at what the top ten is before the end of the race. That will not resemble what the top ten is at the end of the race. I promise you. But but when, when it's time to get into position uh, to make a dash to win the Great American Race, I guarantee you that uh, the veterans and the superstars will be there. But yeah, the, but the strategy and, and oddly enough, it really was started by. You know, arguably the most aggressive driver that I've covered in my career, Tony Stewart. Um, and at Talladega, I remember uh, really at the height of um, restrictor plate choked off racing where we had a group of 25 cars racing three wide at 200 miles per hour in the middle of the race. And all of a sudden, I'm a big Star Wars guy. I remember sitting in the press box and going, I wonder what those Star Destroyers are waiting for from Return of the Jedi. Because I look back there and there's this <laughs> one pack and it's, uh, Brad Keselowski and it's Tony Stewart and it's Bobby Labonte and it's all these Hall of Famers and they were just sitting back there waiting and and sure enough the big one happened you know about two-thirds of the way through the race and all of a sudden those guys are in the top 20 and now they're making a dash to the top 10 at the end so that strategy has existed for a while fans don't particularly like it but they do kind of like it when they see their driver drift back there and sit and wait because they think all right you know better safe than sorry because uh you know uh, pun intended, all bets are off with, with five laps to go. And just one last quick question. If we're going to look at a couple of races down the road, right, as interested outsiders who like numbers and analytics, what's what's what do you base predictions on most? Is it drivers who are having breakout seasons or how drivers do at particular courses or conditions at the courses? What are the leading indicators you'd like? You know, we see a list of guys between plus 900 and plus 1800 at a given race. What differentiates them in a particular race for you? Well, they're just it's it's no different than any other sport where a hitter likes to hit in a particular ballpark and hates hitting in another one. You know, Derek Jeter had the parks he liked and he had the parks he hated. You know, pitchers have the the parks they like and the park they hate. And, and there's something even going into a certain basketball arena, the measurements are the same, but you knew when certain players walked into certain buildings that they were going to light it up, and and there's a confidence level to it, and. I know what drivers like what racetracks and I know which drivers hate certain racetracks and, and, and the numbers matter. So I know when I, when I, I used to know when I went to, we went to Martinsville, I don't care if Jeff Gordon was struggling. I don't care if Jeff Gordon was, was contending for a championship. He was going to run in the top five in Martinsville, just how it's going to be. When we went to Talladega, even at the height of the chaos, I knew Del Earnhardt Jr. was going to be in the mix just because it's a confidence level. It's also a performance level, and it's and it's stats. So um, that's what I look at. But momentum matters. I mean, Chase Elliott's a perfect example. Chase Elliott is the the most popular driver in the sport, the son of Bill Elliott, uh, you know, Hall of Famer, awesome Bill from Dawsonville and all that. But Chase is still young. I remember the day Chase was born. That's how old I am. Um, but he won the championship two years ago uh, or three years ago. Two years ago, struggled a little bit last year was injured, um, was suspended at one point, didn't win a race, didn't make the playoff. I wouldn't touch him last year because momentum matters. And, and you see it. <laughs> a few years ago, Hendrick Motorsports could have got up its own way. Now you can't stop him. You know, uh, Joe Gibbs, right? You, you see it rise and fall um, with different race teams. So momentum matters. And uh, and and a driver's 
personal performance numbers, but then also more importantly, their confidence when they go into certain racetracks. That that's the biggest thing to me. Got it. Well, the biggest thing to me is that we were able to have you on the pod. McGee, don't be a stranger. Maybe we'll do some college football next time. Um, we are so thankful to have had you. I love me some underdogs and I already loved you guys. So now that you're the underdogs, I mean, come on. Right. I mean, it's, I can feel <laughs> it's all, the love it's all, it's all here. Yeah. I can, I can feel the love through Peter's yeah. jacket and through Valentine's <laughs> day and through this podcast. All right. Well, thanks. We will see you soon. And we'll be back with some baseball right after this. Underdog. Underdog. Remember the best vacation you've ever taken? Make your next one even better with Get Your Guide. With Get Your Guide, you can book over 100,000 unforgettable experiences in the U.S. and around the world. Want to see the Grand Canyon from a helicopter? They got you. Watching a wrestling match in Mexico City? No problem. Or how about a guided tour of Rome's ancient ruins? Wherever you're going, whatever you're into, book your next travel experience at getyourguide.com. Underdog. Underdog. We're back, and we've got to move on from football, like I said. So pitchers and catchers, according to spring training, baseball is right around the corner. I'm even working on advanced analytics for little league drafts. Everything's happening. Oh, but but Peter, <laughs> let's get into some our favorite sort of underdog, under the radar off season moves that are going to set up who we like this season. So I think we each took three. Why don't you go first? We'll alternate. Uh, my first pick that I absolutely love is uh, Reese Hoskins signing for two years with the Brewers. He just turned 30. You know, he tore an ACL in his left knee last year. So he missed all season last year, but he expects to be full go come spring training. Fangrass projects him 31 doubles, 28 homers and 75 walks. Two interesting things about that. Milwaukee was 23rd in the production they got out of overall wins above average that they got from first baseman last year. Jordan Rowdy Telez was playing first base for Milwaukee last year. I believe his on-base percentage was higher than his weight, but I'm not sure. Uh, also, Luke Voigt, Owen Miller, Hoskins, even coming off an injury, tremendous leap over those guys. And in a very small sample, he has an OPS of almost 1,200 at Miller Park. He's a great guy. You've seen the pictures of his wife buying all the fans beer. He threw out the first pitch in the playoffs even the, for one of the games, even though he was injured. Um, he fills an important hole. He's easily going to be a, an excellent value. I think Reese Hoskins to the Brewers is great, great under the radar, not really heavily publicized pick. All right. My, my first pick is also sort of under the radar in part because we're not going to see this guy probably until midsummer. but Tyler Mayle signed uh, with the Texas Rangers for two years, $22 million. He's coming off Tommy John surgery, but that's exactly the kind of risk a team like Texas can and should take yes. obviously they have other pitchers coming back from injury too but male at, at not a big steep price is a guy who maybe he comes in in june july august maybe he's even like a three inning pitcher in the postseason but he's always had big upside he's always been a guy who misses bats over a strikeout per inning for most of his career so i i love these sort of flyers on um pitchers with upside who may not may or may not be in the best position right now of their career. And we'll talk about another one later, but uh, I really like the fit in terms of both contract and landing space. Uh, so Tyler Mayall is right on there for, for, for my picks. Jordan. I love Eric Fetty going to the white Sox. He, this uh, guy, this guy, had an, 
This guy had an ERA of 5.41 in a, his first career, six years with the Nationals. Then not wanting to give up completely, he went to Korea. He played for the NC Dinos. That's right, the Dinos, their mascot's a big brontosaurus. Mm-hmm. Now he's suddenly the number two pitcher for the White Sox because can, last year— Can I refer to you as the big brontosaurus? Call now? me the Dino if you want, Jordan. Although, okay. you know, I'm wearing red today, so I don't know what you want to what you want to call me. Uh, look, if you project his stats from his MLB stats, you'd expect him to have an ERA above five again. But in Korea, he won 20 games, two ERA. He added a sweeper, which gave him added velocity— on his breaking ball. He also fixed his changeup. You know, sometimes like Miles McCullough, good example. Some guys go overseas, lower stakes, more relaxed atmosphere, at least for them, and, and not as much scrutiny, get a chance to experiment, remake themselves. Fetty's working with Brian Bannister, who's a real analytics guy, who also coached and had similar results to this pitch mix with mm-hmm. Logan Webb. And Logan Webb works out with Fetty. So this is not totally analytics based, but and, and who knows how to project what he did in Korea. But in Korea, his ground ball rate was way up and he got a lot more swinging strikes. And I think he's a great bet to be the next guy who kind of found himself overseas. All right. For my next pick, I am going to go. I'm going to cheat a little bit. OK, I'm going to say it was yeah, a team's moves on the whole. So I'm going to go wow. with the Cincinnati Reds. The whole team, the whole team, Jordan, 15, what, 16 guys. All right. That's good. Good choice. Since what the Reds did was very much under the radar, very much an underdog strategy and very much, I think, vaults them into contention in the NL Central. We loved them last year. They're plus 340 to win the Central. I will be betting on them for sure. The three big moves. They added Nick Martinez, who you identified as a sleeper free agent before the offseason. 53.8% ground ball rate. He adds innings to a staff that has a lot of young guys with upside but could really use just a veteran guy who eats innings and gives them sort of at least league average pitching i think he may do even better than that but at minimum he supports hunter green graham ashcraft abbott maybe even rhett loader at some point yep, down yep. the line that that is that speaking of which the other pitching move they made is is much more along the lines of a tyler Maley signing they added frankie matas on a one-year deal he's still only 30 years old he still has a sub four FIP for almost every year of his career. Yes, when last we saw him, he was getting lit up for the Yankees and he was injured all last year. But again, this is the type of team that can, should, and needs to take a flyer on a guy with upside. So maybe Frankie Montas is the guy we saw at the peak of his career in Oakland, in which case this team is really dangerous. And if not, okay, he's your fifth starter. Maybe he gets bumped out by a young guy. You can take that risk. And finally, Jaime Candelario, I generally don't love buying high on a guy. He is coming off the best year of his career, but he's a switch hitter. He fits positional need. He's a veteran on a young team. I just love these moves in total. And like I said, I love the Reds at plus 340. Look, when you're not spending a lot of money on your young players because you've developed good young players, you don't have to spend a lot to buy cheap upside. This team is stacked with cheap upside. If there's five guys break through, this team could blow the doors off the division. Uh, here's another team I'm not so sure could blow the doors off the division, the Mets, but they signed Harrison Bader. Oh, oh, oh. They signed Harrison Bader. Look, we've talked about it since last year's playoffs. There's value out there in outfield defense as the key to a cheap addition to making teams win more games. We saw it all through the postseason last year. That's one of the, one of the few things these teams, winning teams had in common. Look, Bader's never healthy, but the Mets don't need him to play 160 games. He actually hits lefties. He could platoon with Nimmo. Um, they have some. Is that, team, by the way, is that what you want? Do you really, first of all, do you want Brandon no, Nemo platooning? I want, and... I want, I want Bader spelled against tough righties. That's all I'm okay. saying. But they'll be playing, they'll be as much playing time as he can afford. Now you're still pushing them is. to sign 
Cody well, Bellinger. My, should my they, question should is, they want Bellinger, a plus defender who can hit 35 home runs a year? That's that's not over, what I was going to ask, though. Take if over they, for Peter Alonso. Yes, they should want Bellinger okay, and but Bader. Sure. Hold on. Yes. Where's, Be- where's Bader playing if you get Bellinger? Your outfield is Marte, Bellinger, and Nimmo then. Sadly, the way play? David Stearns is talking, Bellinger might play first base. But Jordan, <laughs> answer, riddle me this. Answer me this. Who's the Mets starting DH? It's DJ uh, Stewart. Jordan, if Tyrone Taylor is your top bat on the bench, you have room for Bader uh-huh. and and uh, and Bellinger. But let me just say this. Look, people say, yeah, yeah, Bader's great on defense, almost like it's it's like baked in or normalized or something. Mm-hmm. Dude, in his career, this guy has 59 runs prevented, according to StatCast. And that's in line with other defensive metrics, like defensive runs saved or outs above average. That is not just the best in the major leagues. It's by far the best. And when he's been hurt, it hasn't affected his speed. It hasn't affected his arm. It hasn't affected his range. You will get Juan Lagares-style defense with a better bat than Lagares, and Bader will get uh, Bader will, I think, easily set his career high in runs scored. The Yankees couldn't use him because of his injuries the way they wanted to, but the Yankees, a smart team, is willing to give up Jordan Montgomery for Bader. That's how much he could be worth. Well, as long as we're going with guys who are oft injured, I will finish up <laughs> with my last signing. It was the Mariners signing Mitch Garver, two years, twenty-four nice. million dollars. Look, he's hurt every year. I really don't know how much he can catch. He really he wasn't didn't catch at all for for Texas in the playoffs. But the one thing this guy can do is hit. I watched. I read a, a good column by Mike Petriello. He had tweeted about this too. Do you know Mitch Garver from 2019 to 2023, excluding the the COVID year of 2020, has the best weighted on base percentage against four seamers in baseball? 477 I, ahead of I, Judge Soto, I would everybody not, else. That would not, but he would not have been one of my top 20 guesses. So that's and different. overall, he's got, again in that that time span. Um, he's got an 877 OPS, which is outstanding. Um, so look, <laughs> what do you do for an offense-starved team? You add a bat like that, especially yes. if he can catch once in a while. That's a great way to inject some offense into your lineup. So again, for two years, 24 million dollars. There's some risk involved. Again, he hasn't shown he can stay healthy, but if he can. All this guy does is hit. And don't and overlook Peter, him as a fantasy pick. He's catcher eligible. For sure. And Peter, all he does is hit, and all we do is make amazing episodes. So um, I'm super excited to have been able to experience this with your red jacket. Um, we will be back next week. In the meantime, please hit us up on Twitter, at Jordan Brenner, at Peter Keating NJ. Uh, say goodnight, Gracie. Jordan, this year you are my funny Valentine. Always, every year, Peter. Good night, Gracie. There you go.